Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll have our roundup of what's happening over in Europe and obviously what it, how it pertains to uh, the American players. American players playing all over the place. We got Dest Talk and Reina and Richards and all sorts of stuff going on there. The mighty falling over there in the EPL, the transfer window shutting as we speak. Champions League group stage now, we understand and know exactly what that's going to look like. So we'll take a look at that. A domestic versus European U.S. men's national team starting 11s, that type of conversation and that type of debate. German reunification mysteries and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, and my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, October 5th in the year 2020? I am uh, doing very well. Uh, did you know, by the way, uh, my father told me this, that uh, our podcast last week clocked in at an hour and 40 minutes. I did not know when we recorded it. You know, look, all right. So uh, thank you for anybody that did uh, listen for the entire thing. Anytime you listen to the entire thing, we're, we're thankful. But that it was an hour and 45 minutes. I was not aware of that until a friend of mine texted me. And I couldn't tell from his text whether he was it was a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> that we did. There might be too much of a good thing when it comes to the State of the Union, Mossy. So we're gonna we're gonna try to be more efficient this week. When did Alex Dow turn into Martin Scorsese? I, mean, I know, right? Editing, I mean, please. You know, it's like the Irishman of podcast. Editing and self-editing is a is a lost art uh, out there. But you know what? We're in these times. We you know there, there's no more rules. There's no more. I mean, we just we just do what we're going to do. So if if you thought that it was a bonus and you enjoyed the extra content out there, you are welcome. If you thought it was too much of a good thing, I can understand that. I can respect that. So we're gonna try try to find a happy medium here uh, today. But you know, we we might go a little bit long. We we know in the past we've tried to keep this to. A, a an hour type of podcast it doesn't always work out uh like that mossy uh more importantly than that though what have you been watching what's going on in your life my friend uh nothing on the television front my latest obsession is there's a journalist called leon nafok who does these podcast documentaries about various political events and i've listened to several in the last couple of weeks he did one on Watergate. He did one on Iran Contra. He did one on the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. He did one on the Bush versus Gore election. And then the latest one, which I listened to this weekend, was on the Boston busing scandal of the 1970s. All of them excellent. Uh, highly recommend all of them. He used to do it for Slate. Now he does it for Luminary. Uh, but if you Google his name, you'll find it. Uh, Leon Nafok. Uh, terrific. So that, that's been that's sort of taken that and reading. I've kind of gotten back to reading. Uh, that's sort of taken the place of television the last couple of weeks. Oh, a reader. Oh, okay. Whatever. Snobby, snobby. All right. Uh, you're reading books, right? Correct. I just finished a book about the Medici family, uh, the banking family that ruled Florence for... Oh, right. Wasn't that in the um, uh, in the Silence of the Lambs? Uh, uh, not the Silence of the Lambs, the next one that happened. Uh, didn't they uh, throw him off, uh, throw one of the Medicis off of the... Uh, the, the um, not the bridge there, but uh, out the window. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I, I feel like I watched that the other day, and uh, and that that family, that prominent family, but with a with interesting past. If we're talking uh, famous bridge in Florence. That would be Ponte Vecchio. 
Okay. Well, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's what I'm talking about. I'm sure the people out there that are listening right now that have much more knowledge of this will, will correct us in, in every different way. So what I'm watching, or what I have watched this past week that I will recommend is, uh, for those of you that have Netflix, it's a uh, documentary called A Perfect Crime. It is a four-part documentary. Now, um, warning, it is subtitled because it is a German documentary. And uh, if you have a problem with the subtitles, and it is different watching something with subtitles uh, in that you can't, you have to be obviously looking up so you can't be doing other things and kind of just let the, uh, the audio part of it uh, happen. But I still enjoyed it. I, I, I went in thinking that I was going to be uh, underwhelmed and I came out of it very, very happy with it. All right, so what it is, it's a four-part documentary and it's about the assassination of uh, a man named Detlev Roveder. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, this happened in 1991. And he was in charge of the privatization and the restructuring in the re reunification of Germany that happened. There were thousands and thousands of uh, companies and uh, from the, uh, the, uh, the East German side that had to be integrated and ultimately had to be sold off. And uh, he was, uh, you know, in, in a horrible, horrible uh, way, shot and assassinated through, uh, someone shot him through his window of his upstairs uh, in his house. To this day, uh, nobody actually has been um, charged and identified. Uh, so it is a ongoing type of mystery. Now, uh, this is going to sound a little bit callous, but the actual assassination and his killing, you know, as as um, as horrible as it was, isn't even necessarily what I found the most interesting of it, because it goes through this whole reunification process of what it was, what it wasn't, all of the incredible politics and the money involved uh, when you open up something like that, and how people come out of the woodwork and try to figure it out, and you know, the difficulties of making something like that happen where the ideologies of both sides are, are so completely different and having those, those, those two become one and the difficulties and challenges individually of the people uh, and collectively to make it uh, happen and all of that. I mean, I just, I, I, like I said, I thought it was just going to be, all right, uh, you know, the, uh, the murder part was just going to be, uh, be the story. And it was so much more. So I really enjoyed that. Like I said, four episodes, uh, you can binge it, you can get through it. And um, there is no, unfortunately, I'm not giving away anything. There is, there is no ending in that you don't really know, but you have a much better idea of what went on you know, some of the, the, you know, the possible conspiracies and, and mysteries when it comes to that. But also, it was just really interesting to see you know, having lived in that time and seeing from afar what Germany was and what it became through that crazy process, uh, it was interesting to see this uh, this part of the story being told. So that that's my uh, recommendation. Anything else uh, out there you want to recommend before we uh, dig into uh, what we do, is what, which is talk about soccer? That's it. All right, let's light this candle. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about our European roundup and it's obviously, specifically, we, a lot of times we uh, we concentrate on the Americans uh, that are playing out there. And it was it was a a orgy. It was a smorgasbord of uh, American players out there. If you are an American soccer fan, uh, and I know a lot of you uh, are, this was certainly a weekend to be uh, incredibly positive and incredibly 
crowd, as we saw a lot uh, of Americans uh, take the field. And not just take the field, but take the field for some, uh, some pretty high uh, profile types of, uh, of clubs. Not the least of which was arguably the, the, the biggest club and, they, and for some the greatest club in the world, which is Barcelona. And uh, Serginho Dest, having completed that transfer over from Ajax, not only was on the game day roster for the weekend, didn't start, but ultimately came into the game. And it was, uh, you know, it was a wonderful moment. And um, you could tell that I think he uh, appreciated it. Conrad, Conrad De La Fuente was on the bench uh, there too. So plenty of American angles to look at when it comes, uh, when it comes to uh, Barcelona, if you needed a reason to watch Barcelona, or if you needed another reason to watch Barcelona. Mossy, how, how'd you think that went from a desk, uh, desk standpoint? Well, first off, you know, it's interesting in mapping out these rundowns when I'm texting with Alex Dowd throughout the week, it used to be that you'd have to go out of your way to talk about the Americans in Europe and then pivot from that to talking about the biggest teams and biggest games. And now the two sort of blend together. I found that we can just do a normal European weekend review in which you obviously focus on the Americans, but in doing so, you're also addressing the biggest games too, which kind of speaks to uh, this amazing phenomenon of all these Americans on populating the biggest clubs in Europe. And yeah, um, very solid debut for him. He came in, came on and played at left back for, for Jordi Alba uh, and acquitted himself well. And Ronald Koeman made a big point afterwards of talking about his versatility, the fact that he can play either fullback position. So yeah, that's going to really help him get on the field. So yeah, very encouraging start to life for him with Barcelona for sure. And a game in which Barcelona, frankly, uh, weren't at their best. They had had back-to-back really encouraging victories. There was a lot of buzz. And then Sevilla come to town, and it was a little bit of a dose of reality that Ronald Koeman still has some work to do there. Coutinho played very well, so he continues on with his momentum. But overall, it wasn't a great Barcelona performance. They draw 1-1. But Sergino Dest, I was reading the Barcelona papers, and they were highlighting him as one of the real bright spots from this game. You know, I mentioned when we watch these games, uh, there is a uh, an understandable tendency to be to be proud, and and I I'm proud when that happens. But there's also when it comes to Sergio Dest, a lot of times that pride is relative to the. American experience that that player has had, and and ultimately the development uh, that we point to and we trumpet. Now, when it comes to Serginho Dest, we did not develop him as a player. Uh, I mean, he came from one of the great developmental uh, countries and and uh, and clubs in in the world. And so, when we're talking about him, it's the pride is that an American player and an American is playing at one of the great clubs in the world. It's not a situation where we're saying, and you know, this is um, this this should be used as an example as to why we're doing things great. That'll come. There's some other ones that we can certainly point to uh, right now, but there is there is that difference. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean you have any more or less pride. It's just a different type of pride when Sergio just steps on the field as opposed to another uh, player out there. And and like you said, uh, Conrad De La Fuente w- was there, and he's much more, uh, uh, you know, of somebody who came over and, you know, from an early age. But there's other players out there that through this system that is under scrutiny constantly, uh, we, uh, we look at as much more having followed the path and therefore the pride is, is much more based in that path that they followed and the developmental type of thing uh, that we had. Doesn't mean that, 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 that we're not excited and, and it's awesome that Sergio Dest is playing, especially as related to the national team going forward when these guys are gonna step on a field and qualify and hopefully play well in World Cups and do all of those things. 
No, yeah, I mean, it's funny in this woke world we live in how much you have to make sure that you're not suggesting he's any less American than any of the other guys. But of course, I understand the point you're making. With Sergio Des, it's strictly a U.S. national team story. With some of these other guys that came up through MLS in, in discussing their path, it's sort of also in the context of discussing the U.S. developmental system and MLS academies, and there's just a whole different element to that discussion. It's sure. also, it's also, and we'll go to the, the next one, uh, which I think, I mean, look, you could pick a lot of these things, but, you know, Chris Richards starting for Bayern Munich, uh, center back, 18 years old, uh, I think, you know, and this is, this is a player that, you know, I, I, over the years, these relationships between clubs have come up. And having worked in MLS, I know that a lot of times it was just kind of a, a marketing exercise. Uh, you say, well, we have a, we've established a relationship and a connection with Team X from whatever league. And, you know, you put out a press release, maybe you make some pictures, maybe they come over for a game in the summer, but that's, that's ultimately it. But the ones that, that prove fruitful, like, for example, a Chris Richards, who the relationship that FC Dallas has had, and it just so happens that they did a trade, it, or they did a, you know, they did a, uh, an opportunity for him to train, he was seen, they loved, they loved what they saw, and it, and it moved on from, uh, from there, you know, that, that was bearing fruits, to see him starting uh, for what is arguably right now, Mossy, please correct me if I'm wrong, the best team in the world. That's a wonderful thing. That is a feather in the cap, not just for uh, you know the player, but also that association, that partnership, uh, certainly MLS, the development. Now we're starting to get into this pride that's associated with the player that we, and I say we, I mean American soccer, did some good things to have this actually take place. Now, Richards is a center back by trade, and he's getting on the field right now at right back. He mm -hmm. came on in the German Super Cup against Dortmund at right back, and then he started this game at right back. And we know from the way they handled Alfonso Davies that Bayern have no issue kind of shuffling players around different positions. So we'll see. Bayern uh, did make a move today for a right back, which we're going to talk about in the transfer segment later on, which could impact Richards' playing time. But still, this was encouraging. He played well, had an assist for Lewandowski, had another assist from Muller, a goal that got wiped out. Lewandowski, by the way, with four goals. Uh, this is coming off picking up the UEFA Player of the Season Award. So he left no doubt that he was deserving of that award. This was a crazy game. Bayern shipping a lot of goals right now, nine in the last three games. Uh, they win this one 4-3. But yeah, Richards, for sure, part of the story, played very well. And also, you mentioned um, Alfonso Davies. Just because you play a position for Bayern Munich, uh, for a club, obviously, doesn't mean that you're going to play it on the international scale, uh, level. We've seen him when he comes to Canada, uh, they push push higher up the field. So, you know, that, that Chris Richards is playing out at right back doesn't mean that he can't be looked at as a center back going forward for, uh, for the national team. But he's also very, very young. And I'm, I'm going to talk more about the reality versus the perception when it comes to these uh when it comes to these things and these players a little later on in the uh uh in the podcast but wonderful for him to see that happening uh, going forward he uh he got an assist during the game came off injured but uh you know this is this is good stuff this is good stuff regardless of what happens uh going forward speaking of good stuff and now i mean look let's let's get to it did i bear i hope i didn't bury the lead but Three assists for the young man in Dortmund. And if you don't know who, uh, who I'm talking about, Gio Reyna is the real thing, uh, the American dream, whatever you want to call him. Um, he was, uh, you know, standing ovationed off the field. Uh, this was a, a wonderful performance. And he just continues to take the opportunities that are given to him and not be phased by his, his youth, 
his relative lack of experience, you know, the uh, high praise that he continues to get, or the environment and the circumstance. And that's the mark of a star. So, you know, a, a great weekend for, uh, for Americans, and in particular, a great weekend for, for Giorena. And two of those assists go to Holland. Those two have a really wonderful understanding with each other. And, you know, I, I scoffed a few months ago at U.S. fans uh, who tried to suggest that somebody other than Pulisic was the player they were most excited about. It just felt like they were trying to be different, trying to avoid saying the obvious name. And Pulisic, to me, was sort of, from a talent standpoint, clearly the man in this generation of players. And I'm, I'm starting to consider that I might be wrong there. I mean, it is wholly acceptable now to say that actually Reyna is the one you're more excited about of those two, especially given Pulisic's fitness issues. He is a wonderful talent. The announcers in this game were comparing him to Zinedine Zidane. Uh, he's already shown he can do it as a goal scorer this season and also as a provider. So, yeah, I mean, uh, he's emerged as a key player at Dortmund uh, at a younger age than Pulisic did. So in this inevitable compare contrast, you could argue he's actually on a quicker trajectory to the top than, than Pulisic. So, uh, yeah, very impressive for Giorena for sure. Yeah, but I think that focus on Pulisic is relative. You know, I know Giorena can score goals, but he's 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 a much more of a provider. And the further you get away from that golden moment of the ball going into the net, it it it's not less important. It just becomes harder, I guess, to appreciate it maybe. And you know, Pulisic is a much more dynamic, straight ahead type of player. Uh, he scores more. And he's involved in those moments, I think, more so than Gio Reyna. And obviously, they play very different positions and they use their bodies in very, very different ways. But this is all, look, this is all, like we say with Tata Martino, these are all, it's not a problem. It's just champagne. Let's be, let's be honest uh, when it comes to it. So that's great for him that he continues not just to play, but to, but to star going forward. And, you know, I know that when we started talking about Gio Reyna, I looked at him much more for the next cycle for 2026 and look he, if he continues on on knock on wood he stays healthy he will be even better in 2026 but certainly you're looking at this right now as a 20 as an option uh for 2022 now team has not gotten together we don't we have no idea what the u.s men's national team looks like with a geo reina but this isn't about 2026 anymore this is about 2022 whatever 2022 is going to look like and so that's that's um, that's good and that says a lot that he has in such a short period of time changed the way that I and others even uh, uh, look at him uh, a couple other things Anthony Robinson gets his first EPL start for Fulham um, we did mention Pulisic and and the injury problems at least we saw him back on the field for a nice little cameo uh, for Chelsea. Hopefully that bodes well for the future and that he can stay, uh, he can stay healthy and we can see him in a, in a starting capacity because look, I mean, he has the opportunity to kind of be that, that savior and come back into a Chelsea team that has not been great um, and be that kind of missing component maybe when he, uh, when he does come back. Anything else, uh, Mossy, uh, that I'm missing here when, uh, with regards to uh, the players that we've talked about? Let's talk, let's talk about McKenney next, but anything else uh, with regards to the ones we just already talked about? Uh, no, I mean, just great to see Pulisic wearing that number 10 jersey back in our lives. Uh, hopefully he can stay healthy. Uh, okay, Weston McKenney. Is this a situation that happened this weekend? Even though Juventus didn't ultimately play the game, there was a forfeit, there was a big old problem with uh, their game uh, at home against uh, Napoli in that Napoli actually didn't show up because of some COVID problems and the forfeit was happened, uh, even though 
uh, Juventus put out a lineup and they were there in the stadium. It was a very strange and peculiar situation. Uh, that, that, that'll get sorted out and that will be dealt with. Um, more interesting to me is that in the 11, there was no Weston McKinney after having started the first uh, two games. Is this a situation, Mossy, where reality is hitting? Is this a situation where you say, I told you so in that there, we all knew that there was plenty of competition and there were players that were coming back from injury that were going to challenge him. Is this a situation where it's just one game or should a Weston McKinney be worried that it was all fine and well for the first couple of games, but uh, now the real this is the reality of what Juventus is going to be. Yeah, I don't know how much we want to read into a lineup put out for a game that they knew wasn't going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Juventus, this was completely farcical, I have to say. I mean, the same thing happened recently in Brazil with Palmeiras-Flamengo game, and I remember thinking, boy, only in Brazil could something like this happen, and then it happens in Italy as well. Uh, and Juventus just basically had to go through the exercise of pretending like they were ready to play the game just so they can collect the three points on forfeit and have it be all Napoli's fault that the game didn't occur. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, they did put out a lineup. And listen, I said McKinney had had a, a lousy game against Roma uh, the game before, and the player who came on from in the second half, Artur, played very well. And in the aftermath, a lot of people were clamoring for Artur to start the next game, and lo and behold, this lineup comes out, and it is Artur starting uh, in the center of the park and McKinney on the bench. So, uh, who knows what's going to happen the next time they put out a lineup for a game that's actually going to happen. Uh, but yeah, so it, it sort of went the way I kind of suspected it might, which, you know, it's okay. Early on, there's going to be ups and downs for McKinney. And, and I'm sure Pirlo just wants to get a look at all his different midfielders and give them opportunities early on. So I wouldn't read too much into it, particularly given the circumstances we mentioned. But yeah, it is worth noting that uh, in this sort of ghost lineup that uh, Juve put out uh, this weekend. McKinney was not in it. I, I, I agree with you in that we shouldn't, you know, make too much of it, but I don't look at the lineup because of the circumstances being invalid or anything. I don't like, I mean, I don't think he said, well, since we're not going to play the game, I'm just not going to start McKinney and I'm just going to throw other people in. I think that this was a legitimate 11 that had the game happened, he was going to play. He should have just had fun and put like Ronaldo in goal. You know, who cares? <laughs> that's, that's true. It was strange. I, you know, I, I, I watched it and the way it was televised because you had to go through the ceremony and the ritual just to check all the boxes to make it an official, I guess, again, not an, yeah, an official game and therefore an official forfeit. And, and you know, the team walks in and the commentators came on and kind of talked about how this is what would have happened. It was a very, uh, like you said, a very strange and surreal type of uh, experience. All right, plenty of other Americans uh, also continuing to get time, which is great to see. Brooks continues on. Sargent continues on. Tyler Adams did not play, but we know that when he is healthy, uh, he is certainly uh, one, of the, one of the best out there. So uh, plenty to be excited about when it comes to Americans playing all over Europe and playing, like we said, at some very, very big clubs. It, it's... Uh, 2020, it's a, it's a hell of a year. It's got its good and it's got its bad. But uh, from an American playing standpoint, this is going to be a year that will uh, certainly be remembered. All right, enough uh, of that. Let's move on to some non-American stories, Mossy. And it was uh, it was nuts. Let's be honest. It was nuts in the EPL this weekend. And, and what happened? The score lines, the way in which those score lines uh, happened. And it, it got me thinking. And, and and I want to get your 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 opinion on this as we go through it. And maybe you throw it in there as we're going along, or maybe you want to do it later on. But think about this. 2020, we know that it is such a 
unique and different type of year. And we certainly know that the environment and the circumstances that these teams and players find themselves in is unlike anything else that has ever happened. And you have nothing to compare it to. And your ability to adjust and adapt ultimately uh, is going to enable you to succeed or not. And in that, in, in that sense, is all of this craziness happening because of 2020? Or is this just, would this happen anyway at some point? And, you know, like I said, either, either the results or the way in which these results are, are happening. Here's the hot take to end all hot takes. Uh, is football maybe not better without fans? <laughs> because we're seeing so many goals and exciting games. And maybe, I mean, without the distractions of thousands of people yelling at you, players are just able to play and more loosely. And I don't know. But yeah, I mean, there is cer- happening here. <laughs> in a certain way, there are look, it's there are less repercussions and certainly less direct repercussions, <laughs> repercussions uh, that that happen when you are in that intense cauldron where every single move is judged by the reaction and the volume and all that. And so, so maybe these players at times do things that they won't, wouldn't normally do both, both in a positive way. And I guess in a negative way, in the, in the way that they, they, they play, but then that gets back to my point of then is it even fair for us to judge it? Because, this is not the norm. There will be a, well, there'll be a new norm, but it'll be a return to normal with people in the stands at some point. And so if a player or in a team is doing something right now, is it, is it an anomaly? And is it unfair to me for me to criticize them because they're not able to do it in completely abnormal type of uh, situations? Yeah, I wondered that when the games returned, but it seems like we've kind of settled on, yes, you can analyze what's going on and we haven't given teams that have struggled that break or players that have struggled by saying well it's unusual circumstances it, it seems like managers are still getting fired and players are getting criticized for lousy so, so then so then explain liverpool to me uh, i can't that is one of the freakish score lines in premier league history i don't read that much into it from a liverpool perspective you know Bayern just lost 4-1 to hoffenheim you know it's a bad day at the office i mean they, they've banked enough currency with me that i think liverpool will go on uh, uh, and, and still win the premier league but, you know, maybe from a Villa perspective, it does say something about them. I mean, three wins out of three, they're playing well. Uh, this Ollie Watkins with a hat trick, Grealish with two goals. The fact that they held on to him, he's, he's a big star. Ross Barkley pulling the strings in his first game for Villa. So they might have a little something going on there. Three wins out of three for them. And, uh, you know, there is some talk among Premier League folk that because this is such an unusual season, if there's ever going to be sort of an outside-the-box champion again, uh, you know, we're sort of living in this era where it feels like it's gotten so predictable in these top European leagues, so top heavy, uh, that maybe this is the season. I know Roy Smith's made that point as well, that if there's ever going to be sort of a freak champion in one of these leagues. Uh, this would be the season for it to happen. And you look at the Premier League table and you see clubs like Villa and Everton right up there. And who knows, maybe maybe there's something to that. Someone, uh, when I woke up this morning uh, on Twitter, was asking me about uh, and lamenting the fact that there is too much attention being focused on the failure of say a Liverpool to win or a Manchester United to win as opposed to the success of their opponents. And my point to them was, look, when it comes to Liverpool, this is arguably the best team in the world. This is a a team that has been incredibly successful uh, and obviously a very, very big worldwide global brand. 
in the same way that Manchester United, with all due respect to, to, uh, to Spurs, is a global brand and a much bigger story. So that story is always going to focus on the failures of the great relative to the successes of the mediocre. And when we're talking about these big, big brands. So I don't think that that should be any surprise. And look, credit to the teams and, and to the players for what they did. It may or may not be an anomaly. Uh, it may just have been one of those days at the office. And by the way, after this break, there is going to be this, uh, this international break. Uh, the next game that Liverpool has is against Everton. So... <laughs> So if they are going to rebound, it's against a team that is sitting at the top of the EPL right now. So uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing for Everton, but we're going to find out. And it's going to be uh, fun to see how these teams rebound. Well, on the United Tottenham front, uh, I will give some credit to the, uh, the victorious team there, uh, namely because it's, it's, I think, the only Premier League prediction I, uh, that's looking okay so far that I made because everything else I've, I've, I predict has been a disaster. But I put Tottenham in my top four. I thought people were underrating them. There was way too much doom and gloom. And I'm feeling increasingly good about that prediction. I love the way they're playing. Uh, Mourinho looks very motivated this season to kind of shove it in his critics' faces who think he's past it. Uh, and he's recovered in Dombele, which surprised me. I thought that was kind of a lost cause. Kane and Son might be the best one-two punch in the league. So I know they benefited from that red card, which how did you feel about that Martial red card? I thought it was a little silly. I mean, it was kind of a love tap on Lamella. I know you're not supposed to do that, but referee could have let that go. I thought that was a bit harsh. What did you think? Can't be a little pregnant. <laughs> you know, I mean, when, when, when it's obvious that players are embellishing something, I... I don't fault them because they are trying to draw attention. And in a game where there's so much happening, and I know now with VAR and video, we can see a whole, a, a whole lot more. But I look at it as opposed to trying to get somebody kicked out or, some, or something like that. I just think you're highlighting and saying, hey, look, this is what happened. And because oftentimes it, it isn't seen or is, it is a... It is ignored, but yeah, it was soft. It, it was it was in, uh, incredibly soft. And it's worth noting, Spurs were winning the game already and were outplaying them. So the red card obviously helped them pile on, but I, I, that that game already had the feel of a Spurs victory. Anyway. And they still got they still got a bail waiting in the wings. I mean, it's yeah. uh, this is uh, this is this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun to see Absolutely. how they screw this up. Um, <laughs> Uh, Ole, uh, we talk about him over the years. Ole uh, Gunnar Solskjaer. So, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Solskjaer, right? There we go. Let's cut to the chase. Is he the right person for this job? I guess we're wondering again. I thought they had really turned the corner the second half of last season. He had shown himself to be the right man for the job, and they had all this momentum, and I expected him to build off that. And no, it's all the all the doom and gloom. The dark clouds are back again, and people questioning Solskjaer. And what's amazing is they seem to get a penalty every game, which Bruno Fernandes invariably converts. I got one 30 seconds into this one. So it's amazing to go in virtually to virtually every game, knowing you're going to get a penalty in your favor. And yet still they, they, they can't get the results right now. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, any good feeling coming out of last season has evaporated and, and Solskjaer needs to really get this sorted soon or else he's going to be in big, big trouble. I was joking on Twitter that uh, poor Ole, it, uh, it, uh, it was too bad for him that uh, the game wasn't on Peacock because everybody was watching this uh, <laughs> this game because it was on NBCSN, and uh, it was not good. And it wasn't even just the losing. When you when you listen to a lot of the reactions uh, of either the fans or the pundits, it was 
it was how they lost, obviously, the number of goals, uh, but the way that they kind of gave up and at home. And this is where, you know, the lack of crowd can negatively impact it, because can you imagine as that started to happen, what that would have sounded and looked like had there been a home crown, uh, home crowd there? And maybe it wouldn't have been as bad because you would have had that pressure and that heat coming at you at a much earlier time and on a consistent basis that just that uh, just isn't there. All right, so craziness going on uh, in the EPL. Who knows? Maybe it's just one of those days uh, on one of those weekends. But from a viewing standpoint, it was it was fun. I had a good time. Goals are always good, and the more the more the better. All right, we talked a little bit about what happened over in Italy with the Napoli Juventus game and that farcical type of thing. Uh, over in Spain, Eden Hazard injured yet again. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, I tell you that staying healthy is a skill and. He has yet to master that, uh, uh, yet to ma- master that skill. But Real Madrid do uh, find a way to get a, a victory going forward. Any La Liga thoughts? Yeah. So this Hazard thing is headed towards being a catastrophe. They, he was supposed to come back for this game. He gets re-injured. He's going to be out several weeks now. They did beat Levante 2-0, Vinicius and uh, Benzema with the goals. And the only other team I want to mention is Atletico Madrid, which I made such a big deal after that Suarez debut, two goals, one assist in 20-something minutes. They beat Granada 6-1, and he's going to bring a different dimension to that team. This is going to be a different Atletico Madrid. And they followed that up with two straight nil-nil draws. Uh, I am now convinced that if you gave Diego Simeone like the 1970 Brazil team, that they'd still be grinding out nil-nils and one-nil. Like he just doesn't know any other way to coach. And no matter how much attacking talent you give him, eventually he's going to pigeonhole it into that kind of style of football that he knows. So yeah, I, I, I probably got excited to, you know, too quickly over one game and this is still going to be an Atletico Madrid team. That's going to be offensively challenged and having to grind out every game. Diego Simeone, the <laughs> proud destroyer of anything and everything beautiful. Oh my goodness. Well, you know what you, you it, at least it, it's not a surprise. You know exactly what he is and what he is going to give you. And uh, sh- shame on you if you hire that and want that and then complain uh, or whine about it after the fact. So I don't know. We'll so, we'll see. Uh, anything else from a European perspective, Mossy? That's it. All right. When we come back, uh, we're going to dive into the closing window. The uh, transfer window is closing and or closed by the time that you listen to this. And uh, we will see uh, some of the things that happened or some of the things that different, uh, didn't happen. All right, that's uh, right after this break. Don't go away. Moving on. All right, welcome back. Uh, as you know, the transfer window is open slash closed, depending on when you actually are listening to this. We are taping this on, as I said, Monday, October 5th. We are doing this in the morning and it is closing as we speak, which means that uh, there will be stuff that we know and stuff maybe that we don't know. We're trying to get it all in as we as best as we can. There'll even probably be some of those stories that we inevitably have where documents didn't come until three seconds late or three seconds early or anything like that. But there's still plenty to talk about stuff that either we have been talking about over the last uh, month uh, or is just coming to light as uh, as we speak. Masi, what are the what are the names that that jump out at you most right now? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by this uh, United pursuit of Usman Dembele. Uh, Jaden Sancho was left out of Dortmund's squad for the last two games, which got the English media in a tizzy. 
but it sounds like it was because of illness and not because there's anything going on with Manchester United. I still stand by what I said. That deal is not going to happen. And I'd be shocked if something breaks in the next few hours uh, differently from that. And so United have started to consider uh, backup alternatives, one of them being Usman Dembele, which is ironic because Usman Dembele not long ago was what Jaden Sancho is now, the hot young star coming out of Dortmund. Mm-hmm. Remember, he signed with Barcelona for over 100 million euros to be the replacement for Neymar. Hasn't really happened there but mostly because of injuries and disciplinary issues. Even his biggest critics uh, in Spain would admit he's shown flashes. There's talent. There's a great player somewhere in there. Uh, Keith Koskin and I have always been big fans of his. We sort of joked that we're the last two people on Usman Dembele Island still clinging to this notion that he's going to turn into something. The issue here is United won him on loan. Barcelona wanted to be a permanent sale. Uh, Barcelona are trying to uh, clear out his salary and make some money back so they can go buy Memphis Depay from Lyon, uh, which... Uh, I've said this before, uh, Dutch coaches have this tunnel vision. They only seem to know Dutch players. The three players that Koeman has asked for there are Jorginho Wijnaldum, Serginho Dest, and Memphis Depay. I mean, you could have thrown in a non-Dutch player somewhere in there just to at least show that he has some view of the rest of the world. But nevertheless, so I'm kind of waiting on that, seeing how that whole situation is going to play out. Will United end up getting Usman Dembele? And then in turn, that would free up Barcelona to get Memphis Depay. So that's one of the big things I'm sort of keeping an eye on. If United could get Dembele on loan or for a modest enough fee, I think it's a chance worth taking. There's a lot of upside there. Now, if it ends up being for this massive fee that precludes them being able to go back in for Sancho next summer, then I'm not so sure. So interesting to see how that all plays but, out. But I just want to make sure I understand you. It's not a like for like. I mean, Sancho is the, the, the premium. I mean, that's right. I mean, correct. Yeah. You're not making a case that you would rather have Dembele than Sancho, right? No, no. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to uh, make sure. What? What? What of the uh, the, the curious case of Deli Ali? Yeah. So if you watched that uh, Tottenham documentary, which I know you were a big fan of, uh, no, no having watched it, this <laughs> does not surprise me in the least. I thought he, I thought he as an individual, and once again we talk about editing and 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 it can be misleading. But I, I thought he as an individual actually came off as aloof. <laughs> arrogance and not buying into what was going on there. Yeah. So uh, after Mourinho took over, uh, they depicted this in the documentary. One of the first things he did was call Dali Ali into his office and, and kind of told him, look, you were this great young player once upon a time, but your career stalled and you don't seem to be that interested in training every day. And I'm going to try to fix this, but you got to kind of show me that, you know, you really want to get your career back on track. Evidently, Mourinho hasn't been convinced. And so a lot of talk the last few weeks that Deli Ali was on the block. And so PSG have been kind of poking around. Uh, it doesn't sound like uh, this is going to happen. It sounds like Mourinho is going to keep Deli Ali around and still try to work on him. Uh, but nevertheless, this was kind of an interesting possibility that was raised. Uh, PSG, by the way, it's been an interesting last few days there because Thomas Tuchel and Leonardo do not like each other at all. And Tuchel, in his last post-game press conference, really blasted the front office at PSG. Uh, he's wondering why they haven't signed more players. He's also wondering why so many guys end up leaving for free. They've lost guys like Cavani and Thiago Silva and Thomas Mooney all for free. And Leonardo did not take kindly to that and, and, and kind of read Tuchel the right act and said, well, if he's that unhappy, he should leave. Uh, nevertheless, in the midst of all that, PSG actually sprang to action here and made a couple of decent moves. They picked up Moise Keane on loan uh, 
uh, from Everton, a guy who it didn't work out at Everton, but is a talented young striker who I, I think changes scenery. He might be pretty good pickup for PSG. He'll be presumably the backup to Icardi there. And then Danilo Pereira, this Portuguese midfielder they got from Porto, who I think slots in very nicely. There's another option uh, in the center of the park for them. And it's kind of been a hallmark of Leonardo. You know, uh, PSG, it's no longer about these big flashy signings. Leonardo does have a knack for making these sort of sneaky bargain moves. Uh, last summer, I thought PSG was one of the biggest winners with getting Kaylor Navas for the amount they did, Herrera on a free, guys like Pablo Sarabia, Idrissa Guy, um, Abdou Diallo. And, and again, this window, they get Alessandro Florenzi uh, on loan, they get Moise Keane, they get Danilo Pereira. So PSG, the last couple of years, have made some quiet, good moves to kind of fill out that squad. And, and they kind of did it again here. Arsenal. Okay. Um, is, is, is the Partey coming to Arsenal? Is this, is this what's happening? Yeah. So uh, waking up this morning, I didn't think this deal was going to get done, uh, namely because Atletico Madrid did not want to lose him. And they said, the only way you're getting him is if you pay the buyout clause when there's no negotiation here. His buyout clause is, I guess, around 50 million euros, I believe. Thomas Arsenal, Partey, right? We're talking about, decided. we're talking about Thomas Partey, right? I'm sorry. We're talking about Thomas Partey. Just so oh, yes, know. yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I it's thought okay. you it's all right. I want to make question. sure. I thought you had <laughs> um, uh, it. Great name. So, great name, by the way. Oh, yes, great yes. Name. Great name. So uh, it, it, and now the latest you're reading is uh, Arsenal are willing to pay that buyout clause, which takes it out of Atletico Madrid's hands. And he apparently wants to go. So uh, as long as the paperwork all gets done, uh, yeah, Thomas Partey will be heading to Arsenal. He's a very talented Ghanaian midfielder. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. I think this is a terrific, terrific signing for Arsenal, Mikel Arteta, if they, they're able to bring him in, which along with what they got done earlier in the window with Gabriel Magalhães and William and moves like that, I think this sets up Arsenal very nicely. All right. Well, speaking of uh, teams that need to be set up, uh, United, and certainly with the result over the weekend and you know <laughs> the, the ownership uh, and the leadership there, in just in normal times uh, are, are being criticized. And it's just, it's, it's echoing now all over the place as to what are you going to do? If you do it, is it going to be smart? Are you going to spend the money? Is it going to be smart money? What are they going to do? Are they going to, are they just going to sign people just to sign people or are they going to actually sign people that are actually going to help? Well, there's two issues with Manchester United. Uh, first off, they didn't address their biggest need, which was center back. And then even the players they do bring in, when you leave everything to the end of the window, it just sort of reeks of desperation. These are moves that if they had made a few weeks ago, I think the narrative would have been a lot more positive bringing in Cavani and Taylors, but bringing him in at the last minute, I don't know, it just sort of, there's all of a sudden now kind of a weird vibe surrounding these moves. I will say though, um, Edinson Cavani, there's been a lot of comparisons to the Radamel Falcone move, which obviously didn't work out. And if you view this as like them bringing in this big time striker to make a major impact, then yeah, I, I think you might end up being disappointed. I mean, Cavani turns 34 years old in a few months and he's clearly not uh, the player he once was. But if you view this through more through the lens of they're just kind of upgrading that Igalo spot and giving Solskjaer another option when he wants to play with the target striker... I don't know. Getting Cavani on a free, I don't think it's such a bad move. I, I think it's a, it actually could turn out to be a pretty good deal. And Tellez is, is, is a, a Brazilian left back they get from Porto, who uh, was very much in demand. Uh, he was also linked with PSG and I think is a good player. So these are not bad moves, but they just sort of, you know, the optics are terrible. You sort of wait till uh, the last minute and then you announce two signings who aren't a center back on a day where you get drilled 6-1 and your center back pairing is a disaster and it has everybody thinking wait a minute why are you worrying about any other position other than center back when that's clearly the biggest need so uh, kind of a weird window here for United but I think something is better than nothing and obviously you have the ideal of what you'd like to do but if you're a team like 
like Manchester United or anyone, if you're going through a problem, what your fans want to see is activity. They want to see you doing something. So I think you do benefit, even if it's last minute, I still think that you benefit from actually being seen and perceived as if you are being proactive and actually going out there uh, and doing something. And you know, if you're not breaking the bank, and the bank is very, very big when it comes to Manchester United, you know, I, it's not, is it smart? Yes, I think, it, but it's much more marketing as opposed to, like you said, filling holes that are, that are necessary. Uh, anything else when it comes to the transfer window out there that you want to touch on? Yeah, a few more miscellaneous things. Tottenham, for a lot of this window, there was a sense that they weren't going to be that active. Uh, they had made two smaller moves, getting Matt Doherty and, and Pierre Hoiberg, and it looked like that might be it. And then they kind of sprang to life here, getting Breguignon, Gareth Bale, and then this Carlos Vinicius from Benfica, which is one of the more head-scratching transactions of this window from a Benfica perspective. This is a Brazilian striker who's a major talent, had a great season last season. Benfica are usually pretty good about cashing in on their players. Look no further than they just got 70 million euros from Manchester City for Ruben Diaz. And it, I thought that Carlos Vinicius was a guy that would command a big price tag that they were going to be able to cash in on. Instead, they send him on loan to Tottenham, which for Tottenham is a terrific pickup. They've been looking for a backup for Harry Kane. And so he's going to slot in there very nicely. It's a loan with an option to buy for a pretty big number, which if he does well, then maybe Tottenham will be willing to spend that number next summer. But if not, then no harm. And then you'd be sending him back to Benfica with his value kind of damaged if he doesn't do that well with Spurs. So from the Benfica perspective, I'm not really sure what the logic was behind this transaction. But nevertheless, good pickup for Tottenham, who all of a sudden had a really sneaky good window here. And as you mentioned earlier, if Gareth Bale ever pans out, all of a sudden they have a lot of guys there, very talented squad. A um, couple of other moves I want to mention. Uh, Juventus, it sounds like, are going to get Federico Chiesa done. Uh, very talented young player from Fiorentina. Uh, he's the son of a guy I think you played with in Serie A, Enrico Chiesa. Does that name ring a bell at all? Okay. Uh, and so Juventus able to make some nice moves here in getting Chiesa and Kulusevski uh, and then Artur and McKinney in the midfield as they look to get younger. So they had a pretty good window, I think. And then Bayern Munich, interestingly, uh, Gab Marcotti a couple of weeks ago wrote a column while everybody was just sort of praising Bayern and putting him on this pedestal and oh, Bayern's perfect, saying, actually, this squad is pretty short right now and they do need to make some moves because they lost a lot of guys from last season like Coutinho and Thiago and Perisic and Odriozola. And the only one they had brought in was Leroy Sané. And so just in terms of sheer numbers, the squad was kind of short and they clearly thought that because they sprang to life here. Bayern Munich have acquired four players in the last 48 hours. They get Chupo Moting, who a guy they just played against in the Champions League final for PSG. They get a right back from Marseille, Buna Sar, who I mentioned earlier in the show. That's a signing that could impact Chris Richards playing time we'll keep an eye on that they get uh mark roca the spanish midfielder who i guess is a quasi replacement for tiago and then the most interesting one of all not just because he's brazilian but i, I do think that's the case <laughs> is they get douglas costa on loan from juventus which uh fox's first season covering the bundesliga was the 2015-16 campaign that was the season that douglas costa joined Bayern initially from Shakhtar. And his four months, first four months there, were absolutely electric. I mean, this, this is, I think, before you were covering the Bundesliga, you were focused. We had so many other properties back then that you were focused on, so you didn't do much Bundesliga in those days. But, man, we rode Douglas Costa like crazy those first few months. He was like the star of our first season of Bundesliga coverage. We When we did our mid-season awards, we gave him the player of the season so far in Germany. He was electrifying. And then, as so often happens with him, he picked up a bunch of injuries and kind of lost some momentum, ended up leaving for Juventus, leaving in kind of a bad way, frankly. He had a dispute over money there, and Uli Jonas took some parting shots at him. But I guess they've mended all those fences because three years later, here he is back. So now you've got 
Costa, Sané, Gnabry, Kingsley Coman if he stays. So a lot of options all of a sudden for Hansi Flick on those winger positions. So yeah, Bayern really beefed up their depth in the last 48 hours here and really rounded out that squad nicely. Nice. Bringing the band back together. Bringing them back <laughs> into the fold. Bringing them back into the fold. I like it. All right. So as we mentioned, we are recording uh, in the morning of October 5th. The window closes at what, 11 p.m., I guess, 3 p.m. our time here in Los Angeles, 6 p.m. Uh, in uh, in New York. Uh, the domestic-only window will continue to run until, uh, like, I don't know, 5 o'clock or something like that on October 16th. Um, and that applies to a lot of the EFL clubs out there. So, Moss, you got something to say? I can see. One last thing. Yes. The single biggest winner of this window is not a player. It's not a manager. It's not a club. It is a guy by the name of Fabrizio Romano. He is an Italian journalist who has emerged as the, I know this name won't mean anything to you, but the woge of European football. There, there's, a, there's a journalist here in America, works for ESPN. He has a crazy last name to pronounce, but he, he goes by woge as a nickname. And he has, a, he has like the ultimate NBA insider, breaks every story, every trade, every free agent signing, every coach hiring and firing, knows who every team's going to draft before they even know, it seems like. And any tweet he sends out with news, it's now known as a woge bomb. He's kind of made himself into kind of, <laughs> and but that's covering one league, one country. And, you know, you can sort of build up enough context to do that. What this guy Fabrizio Romano has accomplished, he has all of Europe covered. He is the guy breaking all these stories. Today, I, I, I don't even have to read newspapers anymore. I just have Fabrizio Romano's Twitter account open. I just keep refreshing. And that's how I get all my transfer news. He's never wrong. He breaks every deal in every country around Europe. And so hats off to Fabrizio Romano. I know Grant Wall had him on his podcast a few weeks ago as a guest. And 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 he's he's seems like a terrific guy and just incredible at his job. And so hats off to him. Fabrizio. All right. Fabrizio Boy. Romano. <laughs> All right, listen, we will weigh any uh, last minute moves and we'll get, hit the uh, the winners and the losers uh, next week uh, when the well, window is officially shut and um, we will do that again. All right, but anyway, that's that's where we are. It's as update date as we possibly are. If you're out on your car or, or running and listening to this pod and something that we haven't hit, it's just because it hasn't happened with uh, still some hours to go. All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, oh yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi right around the corner here. Don't move. Moving on. Okay, welcome back. Yep, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi. You send us your questions, comments, and concerns out there on all the old social media machines and platforms. And we pick a few each week, as we have done this week, to answer. All right, Mossy, what do the folks want to know this week? First up, at RV Cyber, do you think the U.S. men's national team should start all of our young stars in Europe over some vets in MLS? Interesting, interesting. This is, okay, we are at a point right now in our American soccer history that I think it's hard to argue is more positive um, or exciting or a time that we have been more optimistic about the talent. And as we've mentioned earlier in the podcast, not just the talent that's playing over in Europe, but where that talent is playing. Because look, if you want to play over in Europe, as I see each and every time, there's flights leaving from LAX and JFK and everywhere in between, even now on a daily basis, but getting to a place that changes perception, getting to a place where you're playing, um, getting to a place that values you, that's a whole nother 
thing and a whole nother trick. And we're seeing these players that are playing at some, some very, very good teams. So the inevitable argument uh, and debate is how is this going to translate into the full men's national team? And a lot of the time when we're talking about these teams, it's in the context of um, the excitement that we feel about what could potentially happen from a U.S. men's national team uh, perspective. When we look at the players that are playing over in Europe right now, and you know, this is it's it's heady times. This is this is great. When you look at all right, let's look at a, an eleven here. I'm going to take an eleven uh, from an under 26 perspective, let's say, all right? Zach Steffen, Man City, all right? Dest, who we just talked about earlier over at Barcelona. Uh, this is a, like a back four here. Dest on the right side. Richards, who we talked about at Bayern Munich. Carter Vickers from Tottenham. Uh, Robinson from Fulham. Let's say the two in front of that back four. Weston McKinney, Juventus. Tyler Adams, RB Leipzig. Let's say a three in front of them. On the left, Hopefully a healthy, uh, but we're talking about people being healthy. Christian Pulisic from Chelsea. Gio Reyna from Dortmund. Uh, Weah from Lille over there on that right-hand side. And, you know, we start to push it here, but uh, Josh Sargent up top. And I know he doesn't, he's not a goal-scoring machine, but like I said, under 26. These are, these are players that are playing in big leagues, and many of them for some elite type of clubs out there. And there's a lot of people that think that, they should all, because of this and because of where they're playing, automatically start for the national team. And that in doing so, we will automatically be good. We know that the world doesn't necessarily work like that and soccer doesn't necessarily work like that. Um, it doesn't mean that you couldn't start this 11 uh, or an all European 11 and be very, very uh, successful. But in order to look at the men's national team, you also have to look at the other side and the domestic players that are playing that will figure into Greg Berhalter's equation. And once again, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, Greg Berhalter's job as the U.S. men's national team coach is not to put together the best players. It's to put together the best collection of players, okay? And your CV and, and your resume out there, while important, it does not play for you when that whistle blows. Uh, so let's look at, uh, at another side of it. The some of the domestic players that are under 26. You got uh, in goal, how about a Matt Turner over there from New England? I know he is the, the, uh, the player du jour right now when it comes to uh, um, domestic talent. Uh, Arajo from the Galaxy over on the right-hand side. Uh, McKenzie from Philadelphia and Robinson from Atlanta in that, in that center back pairing. Maybe a Bello from Atlanta over on the left-hand side. Busio from Sporting uh, KC, who continues to seem to be on everybody's mind when it comes to a possible transfer going forward. Williamson from Portland, who I think is just an incredible talent. Okay, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to digress here for one second here. When it comes to Williamson from Portland, okay, there is nothing that tells me that he couldn't do the exact same thing that Weston McKenney did over the last couple of games for Juventus, okay? Now, I know that might be sacrilege to say, and this is not a dig or a shot at Weston McKinney. Weston McKinney's awesome. It's just to point out that I think that there is some great talent that plays domestically here, that if given the same opportunities, would do as well, and in certain circumstances, maybe even better. Uh, okay, so go to the, uh, the 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 three in front of those about Jordan Morris, who we've talked about so much. 
Brendan Aronson, who's on his way to Europe. So obviously he uh, is attracting value. Chris uh, Cash Money Mueller from Orlando on the right-hand side. Up top, once again, it, it's, it is kind of slim pickings, but how about uh, you know Jeremy Bobasi from Portland up top? All of this is to say is this is all good. This is, these are all good, they're not problems. These are all good things to have. When we talk about the talent that's playing over in Europe right now, for me, this, is, this just means that Europe is finally catching up to what we have known for a long time. And that is there is, there is a wealth of talent in the United States. And those that are smart can target it and use it to their advantage when it comes to uh, European teams and some very, very big European teams. It also doesn't mean that in the past, if given the same opportunities, there hasn't been plenty of talent that, like I said, if they had had those uh, same opportunities, wouldn't have been able to play at the, at the uh, big clubs. But, you know, time changes perception. And really what this is about is a change in perception and much more credibility when it comes to the American player. Now, I know that's a, a long answer to your question, RV Cyber, okay? But if you just want a one-word answer, the answer is no, okay? You don't start a U.S. men's national team with all players playing in Europe simply because they play in Europe, okay? And just because they play at what you feel is the greatest and that what many feel is one of the greatest leagues or one of the greatest te uh, teams in the world also doesn't mean that they necessarily start. And I know sometimes that, that, that blows people's minds, but it shouldn't, okay? Form is fallacy, I say. And a lot of times who you are with your club situation doesn't necessarily translate. Sometimes it does. And when it does, you're cooking and you want that. And there's a lot of players that play over in Europe that are going to benefit from that perception that they are playing at a higher level, whether it's a reality or not, and are going to get invites into the national team. And I, I, I tell players all the time, the quickest way to gain relevance, the quickest way to, be, uh, to, to, to have more opportunities is to step on a plane and go to Europe because automatically you are seen as better. And in many instances, you are but not necessarily simply because you are over, over in Europe. So I know that's a long answer and I've gave, I gave, gave you some things to think about. Mossy, anything uh, that, that I said that you agree with or disagree with when it comes to uh, this conversation? No, as I've said all along, uh, there's sort of two parts of your brain and one that sees a picture of Wesson McKinney in a Juventus uniform standing next to Cristiano Ronaldo and does think that's cool and understands why that's significant. But also when it goes to this place of, uh, U.S. fans acting like, all right, now that we have all these players in Europe, we don't have to bother with MLS anymore. It's great. We can put together a national team just of all these European-based players. That makes you a little uncomfortable. I mean, I I've seen projected U.S. lineups that have Conrad De La Fuente uh, ahead of Jordan Morris, which is the, the guy hasn't even played yet. I'm sure he's a wonderful talent, and maybe over time that, that choice will, will become defensible. But if the U.S. had a game this October, a World Cup qualifier, let's say, and people would argue for putting Conrad De La Fuente on the field before Jordan Morris just because he's on the books at Barcelona. That kind of stuff bothers you, right? It does. And, you know, the, the, the two 11s that I put together there were under 26. And so obviously players like Josie Altidore, players like Michael Bradley, uh, players like Brooks, you know, that th th they're going to be there. It, people ask me, uh, if, if the U.S. had a qualifier today, oh, if they did, believe me, I, I would love it. But Whenever the U.S. does have a qualifier, but if it, if it was today, you know, who would start? And who would start up top? It's Josie Altidore. 
I know he got hurt over the weekend, but let's just, just say that he's healthy. And that is a big if with Josie. I know that. But the reality is, and this isn't a good thing. I love, I love Josie. Um, and yes, he should start, but it's not a good thing that Josie Altidore still at this point is our best option if we have a, a qualifier today. Um, and it's not that he's not good. It's just you would have hoped that somebody from a goal scoring perspective would come along and try to take his crown. And nobody has. Jassy's artist is the closest thing. And you, you, I could probably make an argument going back and forth that I still would start uh, would start Josie because I think he can I think he can do more and certainly with uh, his ex, uh, experience going forward. But you know what, Greg Berhalter might think completely differently when it comes if it comes to that. But Josh Sargent isn't there, and there's there's I can't think of anybody that is challenging and scoring goals on a consistent basis that can play up there. Uh, and to play that position the way that Greg Berhalter wants that position to be played. And that's not a good thing. That's, that's a bad thing. In this, in this time where we're so positive about so much, and rightfully so, that is a concern uh, going forward. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's fun. These are, these are fun conversations to have. And let's be honest, we haven't been able to have them in a long time. And all of this, all of this is good stuff. But come that qualifier, and then hopefully come that World Cup, right? That 11 that ultimately steps on the field has to be the, the 11 that works best. And the coach will take criticism if there's a player sitting on the bench that has this pedigree and has this CV. Um, but you have to make the decisions that you feel are going to translate into your team uh, winning. And it might not always reflect on the team that a player is playing for, the league that a player is playing for, because you know, you have to be really, really careful with the perception versus the reality of what your team uh, team is. But listen, all things being equal, I would love for more and more players to be playing at what we consider to be the uh, the highest level out there. That's that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. These are good problems to have. Uh, Mossy, anything else before we uh, go on to the next question? Uh, nope. Uh, okay. Next question at Beth Rocket City. Thoughts on Champions League draw? Best, toughest, etc. Okay, so Champions League draw has happened. I guess we should uh, kind of go through them, and I, I want to get your thoughts too as this uh, came out. Group A, Bayern, Atletico, Salzburg, and uh, uh, Lokomotiv Moscow, right? Is that where we're uh, is that Correct. Right? Uh, Salzburg, of course, managed by Jesse Marsh, who yep. you might recall last season they were in a group with uh, Liverpool and Napoli, and they made things very interesting. They did have Erlen Holland, which helped. Uh, so, uh, Jesse Marsh, again, with his work cut out for him here, uh, I suspect Bayern and Atletico will go through. Uh, can you make a case for, uh, Jesse Marsh, maybe getting Salzburg, uh, no, I think that Bayern Atletico will go through. Uh, no. I agree with you there, but I think, you know, I think Jesse will once again, kind of rise up in, I don't know how it's going to happen. We know that the video that he had, and obviously the performance of his team, I think he will come out of it again with a positive feeling as to this is a guy that can do more with less and this is a guy to keep your eye on so and that's from a individual perspective that's a that's a good thing for Jesse and I, and I would think you know even they would look Salzburg would look at it, that as a success if they come out with their heads held high that they gave everybody a game but I don't think that they're going to have enough to uh, to go through all right group B Real Madrid Shakhtar Donetsk Inter Milan and uh, Munchen Gladbach this is arguably top to bottom the strongest group there's not really a minnow of any sort here Real Madrid have to be careful but I suspect they'll go through along with Inter I would pick Real Madrid and Inter to advance but you think it's going to be close though 
yeah, because Shakhtar and Gladbach are not uh, pushovers at all. So this group is is, is quite balanced, actually. But uh, I would suspect Real and Inter advance. I will, too. And I will actually say that Inter wins the group. Okay? So I'm going to be even more specific there. Uh, all right, Group C. Porto, Man City, Olympiacos, and Marseille. Uh, great draw for City. Uh, they should top this group. Uh, second place, I think, will be between Porto and Marseille. The interesting storyline there is AVB now manages Marseille. He was former coach at Porto. Boy, I tell you, I've gone back and forth on this. Marseille, ever since winning that crazy game against PSG right. where a brawl erupted, uh, allegations of racism, whatnot, they've, their results have been terrible. It's almost like they won that game and, okay, we're, we've, <laughs> we're satisfied with our season. We beat PSG. But uh, I do like that squad with uh, Payet and Tavon. Um I think I slightly lean Marseille to be that second team to go through. Really? I was going to do that. But just because you did that, I'm going to lean Porto then. Man City and Porto. There we go. Could be, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, group D, Liverpool, Ajax, uh, Atalanta, and Michelin. Really fun group. Atalanta have picked up where they left off last season. 13 goals in their first three Serie A matches. And they might be adding Joseph Ilicic back into the mix. Remember, he had all sorts of personal problems towards the tail in the last season, didn't play in the Lisbon bubble. So you throw him into the equation with Papo Gomez and Muriel and company. So they're going to cause problems again. Ajax have a Brazilian player I really like, Anthony, who's off to a great start to life there. Uh, but they've just lost too many pieces from the team they got to the semifinals. Uh, Van de Beek uh, leaving this past uh, window. Uh, so um, I like Liverpool and Atalanta to go through. Okay, I do too. Uh, I think we agree there. Uh, group E, Sevilla, Chelsea, Krasnodar, and Rennes. Terrific draw uh, for Chelsea. I, you, I'd almost suspect that Alex Dowd picked these balls. Um, <laughs> Rennes are off to a good start in Ligue 1. They have one of the most exciting talents in world football, this midfielder Eduardo Camavinga, who's sensational and who's not going to be at Rennes for long. Believe me, he's going to be at like a Real Madrid or Barcelona very soon. Incredible talent. So maybe they can make things interesting, but uh, I, I'd fancy Sevilla and Chelsea to go through. Sevilla off to a very good start this season. Played Bayern tough in the UEFA Super Cup. Uh, got a draw away to Barcelona this past weekend. So they've kind of, after winning the Europa League last season, they've kind of picked up where they left off. So I think Chelsea and Sevilla clearly the class of this group. All right. How about if I say that Sevilla and Rennes go through and oh. Chelsea does not go through? I know Alex Dow just basically walked out of the room. Um, all right, yeah, let's 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 make it a little interesting. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Uh, all right, Group F: Zenit, Dortmund, Lazio, and uh, Bruges. Dortmund clearly the class of this group. Uh, by the way, uh, shout out to Raphael Hanenstein, who I love, but he wins the <laughs> Hipster Award. Uh, the Athletic did this thing where they got their writers together and they each had to pick their favorite storylines in the Champions League group stage. And one of his was Chiro Immobile going back to Dortmund which for those of you who blinked and missed this, Shira Mobley spent one season at Dortmund like seven years ago, scored three Bundesliga goals, completely forgettable. And how that's one of uh, Raphael's top storylines of, I, that wouldn't even crack my top 50. But, well, Masi, in, in, an age, <laughs> in an age where everybody has a megaphone and everybody has a platform, you got to sometimes uh, force an opinion out there and, and uh, force a take out there and try to prop yourself up and make you look as as uh, in the know and hipster as possible. So, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll give him that. That's fine. But yeah, I, I actually don't love this Lazio team. I think they're going to take a bit of a step back this season from last. But in this group they're in, I, I, I suspect they'll go through because they're, they're better than Zenit or Bruges. So I, I think Dortmund and Lazio go through. I agree. All right, here we go. Group G, Juventus, Barcelona, 
Dino Kiev and who's the fourth one? Fenevados. Who's that? Uh, Fenevados, which by the way, uh, uh, back in the group stage for the first time in 25 years, uh, if I may geek out here and be a bit hipster, oh, this is uh, be so <laughs> after I just criticize Hanan. I couldn't even pronounce this. This is the kind of a neat little story. This is one of the storied clubs in European football. Uh, guys like Kubala and Kokic and Florian Albert, legendary Hungarian players over the years, uh, all came up through this club. So it's kind of neat to see them back in the group stage. But I mean, they are roadkill here because uh, there, there's some there's some talent at the top of this group, <laughs> uh, which uh, should make for a very interesting battle for first place here. Uh, all right. So you're not uh, predicting any surprises there. No. And, and listen, it, this was the big storyline of this draw, the fact that you have Messi and Ronaldo in the same group, and we're going to get two Messi-Ronaldo duels. It's great, but they're, they're, Juventus and Barcelona are so much better than the other two teams that there's no drama as far as I'm getting through. And frankly, uh, in recent years, winning your group versus advancing in second hasn't been that big a deal. Uh, so, And by the way, one of the Juve-Barcelona games is match day six, which there's a good chance they both have already clinched. Who knows if Messi and Ronaldo even play in those games? I know CBS executives hearing this right now are probably, they, they don't want to hear it because, uh, I mean, that's obviously going to be what they're going to sort of market these games around. But um, yeah, but still, come on. It's it's Messi and Ronaldo in the same group is exciting. It's that th These will be the, the glamour games of the group stage, assuming they both play uh, with Juventus taking on. So you don't think that CBS is going to market it around Dest versus uh, McKenney? I mean, you joke, but you know, if 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 we were doing this at Fox, we had a real sort of American accent to our coverage. And you know, if Weston McKinney and Sergio Dest were starting these games, that that would get not equal billing to Messi and Ronaldo, but it, it would you know come would like a cool, close though. second. It would be cool. It would be cool. It's a great story. It's a, <laughs> just a, an, another thing to have. And and to your point about how, while we oftentimes. Uh, focus and at times force the talk about Americans over there because we are so proud and it's such an exciting thing. In this case, it's two of the great clubs with two of the greatest players ever to play the game. And, and, uh, and the other interesting little storyline here is, is these clubs did make that Pjanic Artur switch in this past window. So now they're going to go up against each other. So that is another little wrinkle there. Uh, okay. And then the final group, Group H, uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, Manchester United, Leipzig, and Istanbul, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, which, you know, if you're trying to pick out a group of death, it's interesting. Although I said Group B is the best top to bottom, I like this top three better than the whatever you deem the top three teams in Group B. So I think you can make a real case for this one being, to the extent that there is a group of death. I mean, maybe the moral of the story here is there isn't one. But uh, so you've got... Uh, you know, Istanbul, Başakşehir are kind of the throwaway with all due respect. So you've got PSG, United, and Leipzig essentially fighting for two spots. Uh, PSG uh, got to the final last season. Leipzig got to the semis, actually were eliminated by PSG. Uh, and then you've got this Manchester United team, which back in the Champions League, as we just talked about earlier, a very good second half of last season. And we thought they'd build on this momentum, but they've gotten off to a dreadful start this season. So there's a lot of uh, concern with this draw among Manchester United fans. Are you ready to go there and say that United are going to crash out in the group stage and it's going to be PSG and Leipzig? A Leipzig team minus Timo Werner, but who are off to a pretty good start this season, scoring goals. Nagelsmann is resourceful. They're starting Yusuf Poulsen up there. I saw there was even a game they didn't start a center forward. He started Forsberg and Kunku and Omo kind of uh, without a natural striker, but still they, they scored a bunch of goals. So uh, Nagelsmann's still kind of figuring things out there and, and United struggling. Yeah, I'm not ready to go there. Uh, I think that Manchester United is... Too big to fail, as the saying goes. Wow. So I, I say that they go through. Now, look, we, we've done so many of these draws and groups and stuff like that. And, and inevitably, you want the group of death. I always looked at a group of death in that all four were the, the group that had 
all four being as equal as possible, as opposed to, they don't have to be big names or anything. So when I look at this, you know, for example, like Group E, I know Chelsea is a big club, but it's not the biggest club right now. And so I look at that as a much more equally competitive type of group than others. So, but if you if so, if you had to give a group of death, you're still saying that it's going to be Group H, even though only three of the four are competitive. I mean, I look at all four of those being competitive in Group E: Sevilla, uh, Chelsea, Krasnodar, and Rennes. But if you were going down that path, then I would pick Group B because you have Real Madrid, Inter, Shakhtar, yeah, yeah. and Munchen Gladbach. I, I like that quartet better than the okay. Group B one. All right, that, that that's uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, anyway, that was uh, <laughs> that was a a long answer. I don't even know if it was a question. Well- Although we could have spent a lot more time on this, but I don't want this to turn into another hour and 40 minute podcast. So we, that's I mean, I true. We that's through true. it fairly quickly. <laughs> our, our whole, uh, our whole uh, uh, challenge here today, and hopefully we're living up to it, is to try to be more efficient. So let's move on. Uh, I think there's one more Ask Alexi question, isn't there? Yes. At Gone MLS, thoughts on the toy trade? All right. Mason Toy getting traded uh, up to uh, Montreal. A, a, talent but has i think yet to uh realize that or harness that talent uh you know when you when you see a uh, what is it a, like a young foal in the paddock and, and kind of just haven't gotten their feet and haven't really figured out how the game works yet and the calculation and the mathematics uh of the game look i think that this was a, a player who wasn't going to play because they realized that he hadn't figured that out and but with potential and with Thierry Henry up there with what's going on, I, you know, I think that he's actually done uh, a good job so far in getting that team. I'm interested in that team. And I think he does need Mason Toy, I think, does need a change of uh, a change of venue. And that, I think that will ultimately be a good thing for him, which which gets gives us an opportunity to hit on, uh, you know, MLS and uh, and what is going on. A lot of different stories out there. Um, DC United is just absolute shambles right now. Um, not only did they lose at home to, by the way, Atlanta, which we we thought were in shambles and still very well might be in shambles, but they came in and just destroyed DC United in uh, in DC for nothing. But at one point, DC United even substituted on a player that wasn't even on the roster. And it was not a good look. It was certainly bad for DC United and I guess for for Major League Soccer and and those uh, involved. Ben Olsen has, has been on the hot seat, not the hottest seat right now. But this gets back to something about 2020 that we've talked about a little bit here. If you're going to suck, okay, if you're going to fail, all right, if you're going to do things that are bad uh, or perceived as bad, do it in 2020. Because I I think that there will be um, a desire to forgive and to not necessarily blame, but explain away things because of the unique aspects and just the extraordinary situation that is uh, 2020. Is that enough to save Ben Olsen uh, uh, as we go along? We already seen coaches fired in this year, even though it's such a a crazy year. 
with Atlanta uh, and others. I, I don't know, but DC United, as obvious with the way that they have approached uh, their business, does not want to make a change. But this is this is just not good for uh, for DC United. And as I say each and every time, when it comes to possible changes. If you are going to make a change, then you have to believe that there is somebody else out there that can do better with the exact same team, and that her, and, that, and that that person, he or she, is available. And if not, then you don't just change just to make uh, just to make a change, unless you are going to find a way to upgrade. The Los Angeles Galaxy, who for a moment there we thought had returned to the promised land. Uh, continue to lose and not only lose, but lose to San Jose and San Jose, by the way, winning two games in a row. But here's another case where the story is about the Los Angeles galaxy because of the, what the, what the Los Angeles, what, what the LA galaxy is as a team and has been over the years and this super club, but also because they signed Chicharito and it's just not working with him on the field. They are not good. Is it, is it because of him? Is it because he's not a good player? No, not, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Once again, we talked a lot about fit and the right players on the field, as opposed to just the players with the best resumes. This is just not working. And the LA Galaxy has to, you know, has to figure it out. And they have to figure it out, uh, figure it out, figure it out soon, because this is unsustainable. I mean, dare, dare I say it, and I will say it, if you have a deal out there that potentially can sell Chicharito. I think you do it. I mean, I think you just say, thanks, but it didn't work out. You cut bait, you accept the losses, you accept the criticism that you're going to take and you move on and say, this, is, this, is, this was just the wrong fit. And maybe it has to do with 2020 or whatever it ends up being, but I mean, the fact remains that, that when he is on the field, it is, it is a problem. All right, uh, Mossy, uh, anything else uh, when it comes to MLS that you wanted to add before we uh, move on? My only big picture MLS take is I think Seattle and Toronto have emerged as the best teams in their respective conferences. And Pozuelo has emerged as the MVP favorite of this team point uh, Toronto back-to-back -back wins over uh, Columbus and Philadelphia to really kind of stamp themselves as I think the team to beat in the East and, and, and really get them right there in that supporter shield battle. And then we know what Seattle's doing out West. So I know they've, they've met <laughs> three of the last four years in MLS cup, and maybe people don't want that matchup again. And listen, MLS playoffs, who knows, but right now to me, those are looking like the favorites to get back there again. And, you know, I guess I should say this when I, when I was questioning myself, about is it fair to judge people in 2020 because of the unique aspects of it? The other side of it is when you look at someone like TFC Toronto and what they have done with even more challenges than the rest of MLS because of being a Canadian team and playing their home games now in the United States up there and at Rentschler in Connecticut, I deserve. I think they deserve even more credit for being able to adjust individually and collectively to the unique aspects of uh, of 2020. And Greg Vanny and company absolutely deserve uh, all of our praise. And you're absolutely right about uh, Pozuelo and what he is doing. I mean, he is he is on fire. You can just see he is oozing confidence right now when he is uh, when he is on that field. Although I think the, the the folks in Columbus and Philadelphia, which by the way Toronto has beaten 
would still have an argument and a disagreement when it comes to who the best teams are out there. And that's what makes this, uh, that's what make this, uh, makes this fun. Remains to be seen what the, the end of this 2020 MLS season is going to look like, literally how it's going to look in terms of, is there going to be, are there going to be bubble scenarios when it comes to the playoffs and how is it all going to um, play out? But like most things in 2020, this is a work in progress and, uh, best laid plans often have to be changed uh, as you go forward. All right. Anything else, Mossy from Ask Alexi? That's it. Thank you so much uh, for your questions. I know we went a little bit long on that, uh, uh, on those answers, but I wanted to hit a lot of those uh, things that we talked about and uh, keep them coming. Use that hashtag uh, Ask Alexi out there uh, and send it, uh, send it through. All right, Mossy, we've come to the end of yet another uh, podcast. And at the end of each and every podcast, I uh, give you my uh, one for the road. And this week, uh, for those that follow me on uh, on Twitter, you will know that I stepped into the world of White Claw. Masi, do you know what this is, this White Claw beverage? Uh, no. All right. So White Claw is a beverage that came on the market about a year ago when the um, the, the fad started with what amounts to... Um, hard seltzer all right so kind of seltzer water that is infused with vodka and um different fruits and so there's different uh flavors out there and i had i had seen it obviously i had been impacted by the marketing because i knew about it but i hadn't yet gone and uh, tasted it well talk about marketing they got me at my local supermarket when i walked in there the other day there were cases of it all over the place these variety pack cases of these cans and i succumbed to the uh either uh, overt or uh um any you know any type of marketing that's uh, that's out there and certainly it was right in my face i grabbed one of these cases and i got to tell you and i'm not getting paid for this but this is not a sponsor or anything like that but uh it's pretty good, Mossy. It's it's light. It's not sweet, and that's important because before you were around, Mossy, when I was uh, um, being a juvenile delinquent back in the '80s, uh, growing up in uh, in Michigan, we used to well, we used to find ways to procure alcohol. Let's say on a on a uh, on a uh, in a weekend. And I'll never forget. We back then we had wine coolers. That those were the things that uh, that were very very popular. Bartles and James. I'll never forget. I found a way to get a two liter bottle of Bartles and James. Okay, but I got it during the day, and I knew that the party was going to be in the evening. And so I stashed it. And this happened in the middle of winter. And anybody that's in, been in Michigan in, in winter knows that it's very, very cold. And I stashed it outside. And by the time that I got to it later on in the evening in order to bring it back out for wherever I was going that night, it had frozen solid. And I spent the next six hours cradling this two liter bottle of Bartles and James trying to use my body heat and any other heat out there in order to melt enough of it so that I could actually uh, have, a, have a sip of it. This is not a wine cooler. This is much more simple, clean. Uh, and from a calorie perspective, I don't even think there's calories. That's one of the big uh, selling, points, uh, selling points out there. But um, I like it. I like it. I want more of it. I'm I'm partial to the uh, 
think it's a, a wild type of berry either I don't know what cranberry or something like that it's very very good I recommend it all right you know we recommend podcasts and we rec recommend viewing I recommend if you are of age okay if you are of age I recommend uh, you trying it if you're not of age you're not allowed to have it it's illegal all right don't even try to get it and uh, it was uh, it, it I tell you that story about when I was younger. I was young and I was dumb and I got in trouble for it and it's not worth the trouble, okay? But if you are of age and you want a nice refreshing type of drink, yeah, I get it. I get what all the fuss is about. Now, Mossy, are you going to try one? Uh, no. <laughs> all right, Mossy, we've come to the end of the show. You got anything to say to the people before we go? That's it. All right, thank you so much for uh, tuning in each and every week and downloading and subscribing and rating and sending your Ask Alexi questions, send Ask Mossy uh, out there on all the uh, social media platforms. We really appreciate it. And um, we love uh, to be able to do this each and every week. We will talk to you. Uh, you will see us. You will hear from us again the same time uh, next week. And I hope everybody is doing everything they need to do in order to stay safe and sane in these crazy times. All right, we'll talk again next week. And until then, size the day.